Hey, Al, how are you? Hey, Dan, I'm good. How are you? I'm great. You and I were roommates almost all through college. Yes, we were. It was a glorious time. It was wonderful. You are very outdoorsy. I am very pampered. This is true. <laughs> what is it? What is it that you do now? I am the deputy digital director for Pennsylvania's Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. So you are outside all day, more times than not. Uh huh. Yeah. So, our guest today hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, bottom to top, and I was wondering, do you think I could cut it on the PCT? I want to tell you yes, Dan, but I think, I think I'd have to tell you no. It's about 3,000 miles long. When do you think I would drop out? So you're my friend, Dan, and so I know you. And I think you'd make it a good, I think you'd last a day. So I think you'd get to like, you know, 15 miles. And then you might, you know, maybe wish for a real bathroom. I feel like yeah. that's what, I think that's the picture I have in my head. Could I make it overnight? For sure. Oh. I think, yeah. I'm going to get you out camping sometime anyway, so. That is true. I will take one overnight. All right, let's start the show. Let's start it. Hello and welcome to Out of Love, the show where we learn about love through different perspectives in order to have a better understanding of what makes healthy relationships, and for me, how to be a good wedding officiant. I'm your host, Dan Casarella, and I've got a long list of ex-lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane. Before I introduce today's guests, I have to tell you a personal story about why I uprooted my entire life and moved to Los Angeles. In 2015, I had graduated college, and after four years of doing radio and late-night television, with some classes in between, I landed my first full-time job, an executive assistant at VH1 in New York City. Within a month of graduating, I was working at a major media corporation making television. I did it. And I was miserable. A few months after I started, I felt myself becoming dumb and dulled down. Some of this was the job itself. It was administrative work, which I kind of enjoyed, but there was also a lot of free time to do absolutely nothing. Some of it was the environment. Like, for six months of the job, my vice president boss and I were the only ones on our floor. The only two people on an office floor in a steel skyscraper above Times Square. It was incredibly isolating. Though in hindsight, I think it prepared me well for quarantine. Months went by, and I wasn't getting any better. Even though I was at an iconic TV network and in a great relationship, I felt really unfulfilled. And worse, I felt hopeless. I didn't see a path forward at the company, or at the time, really, anywhere in television. I became resentful of every aspect of my life because I was scared. I drank too much at night. I was emotionally unavailable in my relationship. I was a shadow of who I once was, and it was the lowest I had ever felt. In August of 2016, about a year into my executive assistant job, my friends Charlie and Cindy moved in together in Los Angeles. Charlie was my best friend in college, and we had lived together all four years. And Cindy is his delightful girlfriend who is always by his side. They were inseparable. Charlie could tell I was hurting. He called me one night and offered me to sleep on his couch and get me work in LA while I tried to get back into late night television. It was an out, it was something different, and it was an incredibly generous offer. And even though I didn't believe in myself to be successful in Los Angeles and thought, let me prove myself wrong and if I can't be successful in LA and New York, I'll try something new, I accepted his incredibly generous offer. Within one month, I had quit my job, my girlfriend and I separated, and I was on a flight to California to start a new life. Some people thought it was ambitious, I personally thought it was cowardly, but action is not in the perception, but the execution. Within two months of living in Los Angeles, I got part-time jobs at both The Late Late Show with James Corden and Jimmy Kimmel Live, 
the latter of which hired me full-time, and I worked there for three great years. And then, at the end of 2019, I felt like a new person, I felt more fulfilled and confident, and I left LA and moved back east. Now, why is that? Well, that is a story for another time. Perhaps not even on air. But one of the people who inspired me to move back is my friend and today's guest, Greta Hayes. Greta is one of my dearest friends. She was a fellow executive assistant while I was at VH1 and the only person I could rely on during my time there. I would not have survived as long as I did there without her, which technically means I should probably blame her as the reason I stayed so long. But we'll let bygones be bygones. At work, we did everything together. For lunch, we'd grab food from the cafeteria or get takeout. We'd eat in Bryant Park. And though she denies it was more than once, as you'll hear later in the show, every time she ordered sushi, I dared her to eat the wasabi hole. And to her credit, she did. Every time. Greta is a very brave person. So brave that when she was going through her own identity crisis in New York, she also went out west. Like me, she left her job, relationship, and life in New York. But instead of going to the lame of fame excess, she hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Big difference. If you don't know, the Pacific Crest Trail is a 2,650-mile trail that extends from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada through California, Oregon, and Washington. Greta describes it herself right here. The Pacific Crest Trail is 2,650 miles long, which I think translates to like 4,265 kilometers for the metric peeps. So it starts at the Mexican border about an hour east of San Diego, and then it goes north all the way through um, California, Oregon, and Washington to the Canadian border. It's really weather dependent, so you need to start between late March and early May so that you are hitting the high Sierra in California when the snow is melting there so that that's possible, but then you have to make it to Washington before it starts snowing again in the fall, which can come as early as September. I wanted to talk to Greta about her decision to hike the trail, what trail life is like, and how she discovered a new sense of self after taking a chance and going on an intimidating journey. For anyone at a crossroads in life, this show's for you. Here's Greta. So you and I both worked at VH1 as executive assistants, and then we quit, and then we ended long-term relationships, and we went out west. What do you think the the common theme in those stories is? I know, such parallel paths. We clearly felt so inspired at our executive assistant jobs at VH1 that we felt the need to leave. I mean, as great as that lifestyle was, I did not envision myself at 26 still just like hanging out at a desk because I had been in New York for like nine years then. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like every day I was on this track that was getting progressively harder to get off of. And I was doing things like going down to the cafeteria with certain people and eating whole bunches of wasabi during my lunch break. And I was like, is this what the epitome of my life is meant to be? That sounds like a live subtweet and I am mildly offended. It is a little bit of a live subtweet. It's not my fault that you ate the wasabi. No, it's not. It's certainly not. But it, to me, was a turning point. You didn't want to become the person who just ate whatever for entertainment. I understand. No, exactly. How long were you at at VH1? So I was at VH1 and MTV or Viacom in general for a total of three years by the time that I left to go Mm -hmm. hike. I think it was about a year and a half in, though, that I made the decision that I was going to go do it. So then the latter half of my time there was planning and getting ready and coming to terms with the fact that I was kind of about to end this chapter of my life 
in New York that I had been living since I was 18. What kind of led up to you wanting to do that? Was the Pacific Crest Trail always something you envisioned yourself doing and you just never had the time to? Or did something in your life kind of say like, let me take a break and try something different? It was a combination of things. Like, so I grew up in Maine and I was aware of things like the Appalachian Trail and that through hiking was something that people did. Mm-hmm. And then in college, I read Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, which like everyone who hikes the PCT reads and is kind of a cliche. But I had it in the back of my mind that a through hike would be something I'd like to do someday. But it was always someday that it was going to happen. And then when I envisioned my 20s, I always envisioned like having these periods of travel or that I was going to be living different places. And I think during the time when I was working at MTV, which is when I was like 24 to um, 27, I realized I was in my mid 20s. And these things weren't just falling into my lap. Because I think up until that point, I was taking opportunities. And I was on this path where I would kind of just like, follow things that came into my life and that's how I would seek new opportunities and that was fine and it was working and I was like moving forward and living life but I realized that this vision I had where I was going to go explore and go on this adventure wasn't ever just going to like cross my path and it was going to have to be this active decision I made and so after eight or nine years in New York and being at a job that I wasn't really enthused about in an industry that I realized wasn't like my end game passion in life, I decided that it was time to kind of make that active decision and like make it happen or else it just wasn't going to happen. Absolutely. It is strange. It's curious in your mid 20s, you do kind of realize you have to make everything happen on your own because you go through college. And I think, you know, every semester you build upon something and every class was a prerequisite to the next and you're advancing to get your degree. And then once you graduate, you kind of have no direct path of progress. It's kind of get a job, maybe you get promoted, maybe you're more focused on the social aspects of your life. But from there on out, you have to make every new change in your life happen. Right. And that is really uncomfortable when you're not used to it. Yeah. And, and you kind of, at least for me, you you reflect on your life and you said, oh, I haven't done that yet. And it sounds like you went through a similar thought process. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't done it because I wasn't used to doing it. And I also, I don't think at the time I knew that I really had the power to do it. Like I remember looking, you know, through social media or like YouTube and I would see people living this lifestyle I wanted to live where they're traveling or, you know, living van life or through hiking. And I was like, they must know some secret that I don't like. They must have had some opportunity that I haven't had yet. And in hindsight, I realized that they just knew that they could make that choice and I could make it too. What was the the time frame from wanting to do it to being serious about it? And how did you prepare leaving New York to go across country to hike this trail? Yeah, so from like wanting to do it to being serious, I I think it was Christmas 2017. I was out in California visiting family and my uncle has a a cabin up in the Sierra, um, not far from the PCT. And I was out on like a little walk in the woods with my ex and we were just talking and I was aware that the trail was nearby. And I I just remember feeling like I just like didn't want to go back and I just wanted to stay out there in the woods. And I remember feeling this way as a kid too. Like I would go out in the woods in Maine and I would build forts and houses and I always just wished I could like stay there. At that point, I think we knew that the L train was 
shutting down in April 2019. And that was Mm -hmm. the train that we lived off of in Brooklyn. And we both like weren't super into our jobs. That's when I was kind of like having the realization that I was just going to have to be deliberate and make this happen. And so I kind of started saying like, maybe now's the time. I became serious that I knew in about a year I would have enough time to save up money and the timing of when this train would shut down uh, lined up with when I would have to leave for the hike. And so I kind of started saying, like, maybe this is the decision that's meant to be made right now. The L train never shut down, right? Right. It never did shut down. And it wasn't, I don't know, I forget when they, like, decided that they weren't going to shut it down. But that was so comical to me because a lot of that decision hinged on the fact that that train was shutting down. Were you in New York when they made that announcement that the L train wasn't going to be shut down or they were going to delay the shutdown? I think I wasn't in New York anymore, which is why it was funny. Because I mean, it's not like the reason I left and did all of this was because the train was shutting down, but it, it was just like one of the catalysts. As you got serious, and especially having worked in the same building as you, knowing that it's a, a much more corporate mindset, how did people take to your reaction that you were saying, I'm leaving the company? to hike the Pacific Crest Trail? I mean, everyone was overwhelmingly supportive. And I think a lot of people believed in me more than I like believed in myself at the time. I was like really self-doubting the decision that I was making and whether or not it was like feasible and realistic. And towards the end, as you, you left your job, you were starting to leave, you had left your apartment, people were being really supportive. Did you have any sense of maybe I shouldn't do this, or maybe I should stay, or in those final months and days, you really feel that push to be like, this is the right thing. It's weird, because the last year of my life in New York, like there were different stages of unwinding the life that I had built in New York. There was a point where it was like no return, especially this is like the ending of my long-term relationship, which happened in December of 2018. And then I started the hike in April. So once that happened, I knew that like that there was no going back and there was no reason for me really to continue to stay in New York. Before that happened, I was totally like waffling back and forth as to whether or not it was the right time because prior to the relationship ending, that was also a factor that was going into the timing of this hike because originally we were planning on doing it together. And my ex was not as gung ho about it as I was. It was definitely more like my drive to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was questions of whether or not we do it on an alternate timeline or how that would play into it. But once that relationship ended and that wasn't really a factor anymore, I was pretty much 100% going, but not to say it wasn't hard. Because we're talking about self-discovery, I'm curious, how do you think the hike would have been different if you ended up doing it with your ex-boyfriend? Do you think you would have gotten as much for yourself out of it? Yeah, it's crazy thinking about that in hindsight. And there were so many moments while I was hiking where I would think like right now, if he was here, how would this be different? And sometimes like when it was really hard, I would be really upset and I would be crying and cursing like, why the fuck aren't you here? But then there were other times, like there were other experiences and things I realized about myself that there's no way I would have gone through or or come to discover with another person there, um, not just him specifically. And overall, in hindsight, I'm so grateful that I did it on my own and even looking forward to future through hikes that I hope to do. Like I can't really envision doing them with another person. Like it's such a now to me, an individual venture and sport. And a lot of what I get out of hiking is um, 
based around the fact that I'm going into it alone. And I think you really get the full experience of a challenge when you go it alone. And when you build relationships through that, and you could, at the end of it, look at yourself and say, I did this, and I did it for me. And I came through it on the other side. Yeah, the relationship that I've built with myself in the past year has just been the strongest one I've I don't know, have in my life right now. Like I've never felt as confident in myself as I do now and when I was hiking. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for that growth. Yeah, we did an episode on self-validation a few weeks ago. And it's so reassuring to almost feel like you can lean on yourself as if it's another person to feel solid and confident with yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like I've had this thought floating in my mind of the past, you know, year, a couple months, and this is probably going to sound really cocky, but like, I think I'm really cool. Like, I really like myself and I would want to be friends with myself. And it's like, not only do I get to be friends with myself, I get to like be myself. And that's a really positive thing right now. And I think, uh, and I hate to insult you by saying this, you and I think very similarly. And mm -hmm. you always have a strive. I personally always have a strive to want to be better in an abstract way. And once I kind of realized that I'll never be, you know, the most handsome, charismatic, the strongest, you know, physically attractive or super intelligent, but I could lean into my own strengths, that is when everything kind of changed and you really feel solid and proud of who you are. That's so true. And it's one thing to like hear somebody say that because that, that was definitely like a rhetoric that I had heard prior to hiking. But to really like go through that transformation and, and believe those things about yourself is like, mm -hmm. and internalize them is a whole other process. And, um, I mean, I think for me, a lot of what helped me with that transformation and believing those things and seeing what my strengths really were was having, when you're hiking, you just like strip down all aspects of your identity that, you know, you may have used as kind of like crutches, you know, you're not showering, <laughs> there's no makeup, you're not doing your hair, which I mean, not that you do your makeup and hair, but don't speak for me. <laughs> Let's go all the way back to the beginning and talk about the trail itself. And you when did you start doing the trail? I started my hike on April 19th. How long on an average would you have hiked in a day? In the beginning, I was hiking between like 15 and 18 miles in a day. We would start hiking at 7 a.m. and maybe get to camp around 5, take a couple breaks throughout the day. As I progressed, those miles increased. Towards the end, I was doing about between 25 and 30 miles in Northern California. Um, and then it gets mountainous again in Washington, so that slows down. But, you know, there were times where it becomes like 10, 11 hours of just pure walking every day. Third, like, I remember you telling me, I think I, I called you that day or the day after, you did 50 miles in one day? If we're being specific, it was 52 and a half. Oh, yeah. Let's not discredit you there. Yeah, those extra two were the longest ones of that day. <laughs> I'm sure. But that was, that was atypical. That was in this one section of Oregon where the trail is the flattest for the whole duration. And so people will often do either a 24-hour challenge where they just walk for 24 hours straight or they'll you know set a certain distance and try to do that. So my friend Connor and I, we... Uh, we're 50 miles away from this place called Timberline Lodge, Lodge on Mount Hood, where The Shining was filmed. So the outside of it is the hotel you'll recognize from that movie. And they have this incredible breakfast buffet that you've like heard about for 2000 miles leading up to that point. And so we were like, we're going to walk 50 miles there and spend the night and then wake up and have this epic buffet. So we woke up at 1am 
the day that we started hiking and walked uh, 50 miles nonstop, got there at 9 p.m. I was super tired. That's two marathons in one day. It is. Yeah, it was. We finished our first marathon, I think, 9.30 or 10 a.m. that morning. We had been hiking from 1 a.m. And I remember like calling my friend and being like, I've done a marathon already today and I have another one to do. It was crazy. I hit a major wall around the 35 mile mark. I just like thought I was about to die. And then you end the day climbing Mount Hood. So it's like, this really hard and <laughs> the 50 miles. Um, I could barely walk the next day. Was the breakfast worth it though? Oh my God, so worth it. So we were planning to camp outside the lodge that night and we got there at nine and we were like, should we see if there's room? And we went to the front desk and the rooms were like, $300 each and we both looked at each other and we were like should we should we so we got a room and the bar was still open so we like showered and went and had like this full meal that night went in the hot tub like it was the longest day of my life I've never slept harder and then the next morning was breakfast it was great that's amazing because you lived as you said in New York for eight years I'm curious what kind of physical difference did you notice in your body as you were doing 10, 15 miles initially and then building up to 20, 30 towards the end of the hike? Yeah. So it's crazy. Like going into the hike, I didn't really physically prepare. In fact, I think when I started, I was in relatively like the worst shape I've ever been in in my life, <laughs> which maybe not the best strategy. But the thing about hiking is the trail gets you into shape no matter what. Like you're doing these miles every day, you're going to build the muscle. But the tough part is it's not great for your body. You're putting a lot of stress on your tendons and your joints. The people who tend to get off trail, it's often from overuse in their, uh, injuries. So that was something that you just like can't really prepare for. But it was just crazy watching my body transform from being in relatively poor shape because I had been eating pizza and doing a like goodbye tour of New York's food scene into like, you know, three or four months later in July and August when I was just like, my legs were like rocks. It was insane. What did you eat on the trail uh, on average when you weren't stopping and you were just, you know, camping out day to day, what was kind of your average food consumption? Because that's, a, you need a lot of fuel and energy to do that many miles. Yeah, you need a lot of calories. And at first it's really exciting because you're eating like four or 5,000 calories a day. So you can just like eat two sleeves of Oreos for breakfast and it's great because you need it and you can go into town and like have a light snack of three Big Macs. It's super fun. But then like, I guess as the trail goes on, eating kind of starts to feel more like a chore and you start to like look at food differently. And you're just like, how can I get the most calories? Like I would pack out whole jars of coconut oil and just put like scoops of it in everything I ate just to get the most <laughs> calories. Cause you're like shedding weight faster than you can put it on. You know, it's just like anything that you can find at the grocery store that is non-perishable. Um, lots of mac and cheese, lots of peanut butter, just by the jar, tortillas, all the junk food. And speaking of food, you got the trail nickname Hot Sauce. How did you acquire that? Yes, uh, my trail name was Hot Sauce. It happened one night. You usually get your trail name kind of early on. And I had made my dinner. I'd made some pasta and I borrowed a, my friend like had a little bottle of hot sauce that he was carrying. And I was like, can I pour some in my meal? And I didn't realize that it was just like a wide mouth bottle. I thought it had the control like drip top. And so I just dumped the whole thing in my pasta. The thing when you're out there is you have a finite amount of food. So if you ruin your dinner by pouring a whole bottle of hot sauce in it, like too bad, you're going to have to 
eat it anyways. And you ate all that pasta. Kind of. The people I was eating dinner with were generous enough to like give me some of their meals to try to like dilute it. And like I gave them some of my pasta in return. So in the end, like I had this pot of just like six different things mixed together, all just swimming in Vasco or whatever it was. I have a theory. You were lamenting, you were complaining, honestly, if we want to use the right word, that I used to quote unquote, make you eat wasabi in the cafeteria. However, you willingly did this. And I believe it helped you prepare for this monstrous Tabasco meal. So really, I was the key to your nickname. Yes, Dan, it was all you. Honestly, that's probably the most physical preparation I did for this hike was that day I ate the wasabi. Not just one day, many days. Aside from eating, what do you? What was the one of the more terrifying experiences that you had while hiking the trail? I was fortunate in the sense that I never had like any animal encounters or like sketchy hitchhikes, which definitely like happen for hikers. The moments that were scariest for me had to do with pushing my body to like physical extremes that it had never been to before, um, and having the stakes of not succeeding at doing so being really high, like life or death kind of things. And so to give a little context of this one moment that stands out to me, when you're hiking through the High Sierra portion of the PCT, which is like one of the most beautiful, but also the most strenuous, you're on this really intense schedule where you have to go over these high 12,000 foot mountain passes every day. And these are like snow covered above treeline passes that are like borderline mountaineering type of an endeavor. And so you have to wake up at 3am and start hiking shortly thereafter in order to get to the top of this pass while the snow is still frozen and the sun hasn't hit it and it's become slushy because you're hiking up these really, really steep slopes and you're wearing micro spikes so that you're, you know, you don't slip. But once the snow becomes slushy, it's super dangerous. You could fall and die. You want to get to the pass top of the pass by like 7 a.m. And you've been hiking four hours at that point and it's really grueling and hard. You get to the top of the pass, you want to relax, but then you have to go through this next valley to set up to do the next pass the next day. So that's an additional like 12 hours of walking. You don't get to camp till like 8 p.m. And you know you have to wake up at 3 a.m. and like do this routine over and over of waking up at 3 a.m., climbing this super intense pass, and then like 12 more hours of really intense walking through snowfields and valleys and raging rivers. And it's like that for a week at a time. There's no rest. And it's like the most mentally and physically exhausting thing ever. On the third day of doing this, or maybe it was the fourth, I don't know. I was, you know, it was probably 7 a.m. I'm almost at the top of this pass. And I just realized that there was like no way out but to go through and I had like you know a couple more days of this routine and I had a couple more uh, days behind me of doing it and I just felt like my body was about to give out and so I had this panic attack unlike I've ever had on the side of this mountain there was no shade I hid under a bush and like my arms fully went numb. My face went numb. I was like crying and begging for my friends to call me a helicopter because I just couldn't fathom pushing my body any further. And it took them, they were like, you know, that was a moment when I really leaned on my trail family. Um, and they gave me water and talked me down. It took about an hour for me to like regain feeling in my limbs. I thought I was having a stroke and we like all kind of, then for the rest of the day, walked together slowly 
But in the moment, that was just really terrifying. But each time something like that would happen, and I realized that I could push myself past those limits and be okay and succeed, it would get easier. It's terrifying. terrifying. And on the flip side of that, what were some of the, I'm sure the answer is countless, but most memorable sites that you saw? And what did you really take in? What kind of moved you the most? Yeah, so there were the beautiful like vistas of just natural beauty that I didn't even know existed in our country. That's just like life-changing when you experience it. And there was like that type of natural beauty, like being on top of Mount Whitney and seeing this, you know, the Mojave and you can see um, Death Valley, just like tens of thousands of feet below you, you know, the snowy Sierra is just incredible. But then there were moments of things that, you know, you don't really find beautiful unless you're out there hiking, like, coming upon some trail magic where you've been hiking in the rain in Washington for like a whole week without a break. It's 30 degrees and raining and you come to like this forest dirt road in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody's dad has a tent pitched up and is um, flipping pancakes on a griddle and it's just like Mm -hmm. the most beautiful sight you've ever had in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Because you, as we said, went on the hike alone, but along the way you met a lot of people. How do you meet people and how do you determine who's going to be in your hiking group? Yeah, that was actually something I was kind of, you know, worried about going in. You're like, oh, am I going to make any friends or like, how how is it going to happen? But it just like, it happens naturally, especially in the desert where you start, you're kind of walking from water source to water source. And sometimes there's pretty long stretches in between water sources. So hikers will kind of camp and congregate at these, you know, streams and you just naturally will pace up with people and you'll camp with them a couple of nights and get to know them. And then, you know, eventually you're making plans to like share hotel rooms in town together. And then, you know, you're going through experiences like what I said, where they're helping you through these really difficult moments. And, Mm -hmm. um, the relationships are just kind of expedited in that sense that you become really close very, very quickly. What do you think challenged you the most in this overall experience? Because I don't think, and I have a hard time grasping it too, you were there from April to October? Yeah, that's correct. Every day, hiking. Yeah, living outside. The physical exertion was challenging. It it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But at the same time, it was like the best thing I've ever done. Like not, you're constantly uncomfortable and you get so used to being uncomfortable that it's no longer an issue. Do you feel like you don't even remember who you were before you did this? That's how much change happened? Right. So like reflecting on these questions where I'm trying to compare like who I was before and who I am now, it's kind of difficult because I guess I'm starting to like lose touch with the mindset that I had beforehand. I don't know. Uh You're so in the present when you're hiking. And I think that's kind of translated in my time after the trail. What is something like small that you learned about yourself or discovered about yourself? Because obviously earlier in the conversation, we were talking about these big sweeping changes and being comfortable with yourself. But I'm wondering, is there's like a little thing that you're like, oh, I do this now. And this could be maybe spun as like, a negative thing. But I used to be like, the I felt like the person who like would organize everything like in terms of making plans for groups of friends, like I was, you know, and I was an executive assistant, I was always like the scheduler. And now I'm like, really, really bad at following a schedule. I barely look at the clock. I just kind of let days unfold. And obviously, in the pandemic, that's like, 
super amplified also. Do you think that's because you're less worried about like time constraints or about people's opinions or generally things having to be perfect and going right? Yeah, totally. I've, I don't care about those things anymore, which is super liberating. I never cared about those things when I was an executive assistant. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> why you had to move west and the EA life wasn't for us. Yeah. And speaking of, of moving west, you and I also both came back east. And I know talking to you before leaving for the, the trail, you had wanted to stay out west and you had a lot of different plans and then having returned, you felt in your heart you wanted to be back in New York. Why did you want to be back to New York and why did that feel right to you? Yeah, that was never something that I anticipated happening in a million years, I did not think. Yeah, you were very done with it. Right. Maybe being on trail gave me perspective to separate. What I was really done with was this like track that I was on. I kind of blamed New York for my unhappiness when New York is like, a great city. It's my home. It's where mm -hmm. I grew up in a sense. I realized that, you know, I had a friend who had a room open and that I could have other chapters in New York that, um, where I could take what I learned on trail and take the new mindset I had and that I wouldn't lose that mindset if I returned to a place like New York. So just going back after trail and, and seeing friends made me realize I kind of just want to have a, a little more time with that community. I believe you and I were in similar mental states when we left New York and it was everything is kind of like crumbling around us internally and we just needed a change of perspective to do something new. You did the trail. I moved to Los Angeles to kickstart my career in late night television again. And now having come back, I now have ownership over the things in my life. And I don't blame the city. I don't blame the surroundings. I don't blame my job. Before I had left, those were all flaws and those were all things, conflicts that I wasn't dealing with properly. Again, now being more open and being more self-confident, I feel as though, at least I hope in an idealistic sense, the city and the surroundings and the job and all those factors can't get on me the same way they did before I left West. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. I think before we were both very unsatisfied with our lives, but I don't know if we knew the root of why we were feeling that way. So we attributed it to these things like our job and um, relationships and, and whatnot. But then it kind of takes leaving the situation and going through that big change to then gain the perspective of why exactly you were unhappy. And then I think once you have, you can't like un learn a new a perspective, I guess. Um, so once yeah. you have that enlightenment, I think you can face those things again. Yeah. And be more open to it. Exactly. To wrap things up, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I used to hear it all the time and I didn't do nearly as what you did, which was so much more impressive, but people will stop you and they'll say, oh my goodness, I can never do what you did. That's so impressive. You moved, you did this big challenge and talking to you for the past couple of years, like you kind of just do it. You kind of don't think about how monumentous it is. What would kind of be your advice to someone who wants to make this big change, but can't figure out why? And what would you tell them the best thing that you've gotten out of this experience is? Before I made the big change and I was like looking at other people who I'd seen do it, I had this like weird kind of imposter syndrome where I was like, they must have some ability or know something that I don't. And like, there's a reason that they're able to do this. And I like 
wouldn't be able to do it. And the hardest part of making the change was like shaking that self-doubt or like that feeling that it wasn't something that I could do and just like doing it because the hardest part was the, the year up to to actually leaving and and going back and forth of whether or not I was doing something good for myself or if I was going to throw myself totally off track and ever being successful in life. But like once you just go and do it and and you're kind of derailing yourself from the whatever track you were on before it's everything becomes so much more clear it's just like taking that initial step and it's so cliche but once I don't know this is really all there is to it like everything falls into place otherwise like things will go wrong and things went horribly wrong on trail and I had to make big decisions all the time but like everything falls into place and you just have to like trust that it will the biggest fear is the anticipation and the swirl of what can go wrong and will I be able to do this once you're in it once you're doing it you don't really have a choice to worry about it you have to continue and so like you said I do think the hardest part of making a big change doing a, going through with a big decision is the anticipation and the thinking about it beforehand leading up to finalizing your decision exactly and I'm sure you went through that when you made the decision to move to LA a little bit but the other thing about me moving to LA is I don't even know if I told you this, but I always in the back of my mind didn't think I was going to stay. I thought I would be back in a month or two. I And this is like super fucked up. It's kind of what I needed to tell myself to push forward. But I kind of went to L.A. with the expectation that I couldn't get into late night television in New York. Let me prove to myself that I can't do it in L.A. And then I'll, I'll be able to put aside that pipe dream and move on and do something else. And, and luckily, like... I was very grateful and I worked really hard to get two jobs in late night and and had a really successful career there. But I don't know if I would have gone through with it if I really believed I was capable of staying, which is, again, a really messed up sediment. It pushed me there. I'm not that person who thinks that, again, when I left LA to come to New York, it wasn't to prove myself wrong. It was to prove myself right in my own abilities. But it was very easy to leave because I didn't think I'd be gone for too long. That's interesting. But then I guess the outcome in a way was kind of the same. I mean, yeah, for sure. And, you know, once I was in LA and I was there every day and going to work, I didn't worry about how long am I going to be here? Can I do the job? Blah, 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 because I was already in the process of it. Right. Once you're in the process of it and once you're there, it's easy. It's just like the anticipation and, and whether that's like believing that you're not going to succeed or really wanting to succeed and thinking you might be able to, but it's all in the end. It's, it's really just self-doubt manifesting in different ways. Yeah. And that's why I think everybody in their life should move away or, or do a grand experience like you did take a year off because both of us from this conversation, we've discovered so much about ourselves and from my experience and, and you can speak to it to yourself, it's changed every aspect of my life in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I did kind of tell myself always as I was making the decision to leave that proved to be true was New York is always going to be there or like New York could be a stand-in for anything. Like whatever you're leaving, you could generally always backtrack and go back to. Likely, once you've already taken the leap, you're not going to want to go back to whatever that thing was that you were afraid to leave or, you know, because you do go through so much growth. I think taking these big changes is like pivotal in order to grow as a person. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me today. 
Of course. There you have it. If I can leave you with anything from today's show, it's this. Know what you want in life and go after it. Don't wait. There will never be a perfect time to go out for it. But as long as your heart's in the right place, you'll make it work. Also, if I can leave you with another thing, it would be to check that the hot sauce topper is on correctly. Seems very important. Thank you to Greta for coming on the show today. Next week, we'll talk to the co-head bartenders of the Dead Rabbit in New York City to learn about crafting cocktails and what bartenders notice that you don't on dates. And I introduce a new segment where I get expert advice on drinking and dating. If you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at outofloveshow at gmail.com. Please subscribe to and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Out of Love is a production of WeWo Media and is recorded at Hex Street Studios. It is hosted and produced by me, Dan Casarella. This show is mixed by Ethan Farmer, our associate producer. Aaron Bradley is our art director. The opening theme is Acolyte, and the closing theme is Toronto Mug, both written and performed by Slaughter Beats Dog. Special thanks to Ian Farmer, Nora Klein, and Joe Buey. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Stay lovely. <laughs>